If you're listening to this show, there's a good chance you're from a developing country. But if you're not from a developing country, then imagine for a moment that you are, and that you moved away to study in the United States. You graduated from a prestigious university, got a high-paying job in banking, and then you got a chance to have dinner with the prime minister of the country you grew up in. Today's guest doesn't have to imagine any of this because he lived it, and about 20 years ago is when he got the invite. He accepted it, went to the meeting, sat down for dinner, and the prime minister of the country he grew up in pulled up a chair across from him. He sat at the dinner and looked across the table at me and he said, I, I, you know, you're the kind of person that I really hate. Which is sort of an, an interesting opening line from a prime minister that you haven't, you haven't met. And, and I said, why is that? And he said, well, you know, you're from our country. You get educated, you get a job, and you never come back and you never add value back home. But Kevin Conrad did go home to Papua New Guinea, eventually representing his country in global climate talks and becoming in the process one of the few climate negotiators that you may have seen in the news. Most of them tend to lay kind of low. You may remember this exchange he had with U.S. negotiator Paula Dobriansky at the 2007 climate talks in Bali, Indonesia. I have to say that... uh you know, the formulation that has been put forward, we cannot accept. Thank you. Thank you, United States. The U.S. was booed as it asked for more commitments from developing countries, provoking this from Papua New Guinea. And there's an old saying, if you're not willing to lead, then get out of the way. And I would ask the United States, we ask for your leadership. We seek your leadership. But if for some reason you are not willing to lead, leave it to the rest of us. Please get out of the way. And then this total change from the United States. That we will go forward and join consensus in this today. Today's show is the first of three episodes built around that moment. And I compiled these episodes from interviews that I conducted while researching a history of land use within the Paris Climate Agreement. I hope that together, these episodes will help you understand why the agreement evolved as it did and how it creates a global framework within which we can meet the climate challenge. These negotiations take place several times a year, but we pay woefully little attention to them, and then we complain when negotiators don't magically fix the mess all on their own. For the Paris Climate Agreement to have any effect at all, you have to understand it. And I hope to help you do that by taking you back to that critical exchange in 2007. I'll tell you what led up to it, what flowed out of it, and how this sequence of events led to the inclusion of forests, farms, and fields in the Paris Climate Agreement. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, 
make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we hear how the Paris Climate Agreement creates, among other things, a framework within which we can flip the world's forests, farms, and fields from being a net source of greenhouse gases, which they are now, to a net sink a giant sponge that mops up carbon dioxide by the gigaton. We all learned about photosynthesis in school and how plants breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen. You may remember that these plants keep the carbon for themselves. In a sense, trees don't grow out of the ground, they drop down from the sky. They lock carbon in their trunks, and they infuse nitrogen into the soil. In the atmosphere, carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide are powerful greenhouse gases that trap heat down here. But locked up as carbon and nitrogen, they are key elements of life. This is pretty basic science, and when you think of it this way, it's kind of a no-brainer that planting trees and saving forests can slow climate change. But as far as I can tell, it was theoretical physicist Freeman Dyson who first asked if we could slow climate change by planting trees. That was way back in 1977, in an article entitled, Can We Control the Carbon Dioxide in the Atmosphere?, which was published in the journal Energy. Here's what Dyson wrote. Suppose that, with the rising level of CO2, we run into an acute ecological disaster— This is 1977, remember, 40 years ago. Would it then be possible, he continued, for us to halt or reverse the rise in CO2 within a few years by means less drastic than the shutdown of industrial civilization? It's a question we're still asking ourselves today, although I'd argue that if we don't fix this mess, industrial civilization is doomed regardless. Anyway, his conclusion was yes, it would be possible to slow climate change by planting trees, but only as a stopgap measure that buys us time before technology catches up. There's some irony in this because Freeman Dyson is still around, but these days he's something of a climate science denier. So I'm reticent to cite him because I know some people out there will say, oh God, this idea came from a crazy person. But that's the cool thing about science. It doesn't matter where ideas come from. It only matters if they hold up under scientific scrutiny. And this one did. The science is solid. It's pretty easy to measure the amount of carbon locked in trees because half the dry weight of a tree is carbon. And by the late 1980s, people were beginning to test Dyson's idea. Now, if I skip around here and you find yourself wanting more info, I encourage you to check out a series that I'm rolling out on Ecosystem Marketplace called Forests, Farms, and the Global Carbon Sink, which is admittedly a work in progress. Again, it's called Forests, Farms, and the Global Carbon Sink, and I'll provide a link to it in today's show notes. The series looks at the entire history of natural climate solutions within the Paris Climate Agreement, And that history is important because we're drifting into silly territory here. We're replaying old debates that were resolved more than a decade ago. And we simply cannot afford to waste our time doing that now. 
If you like this series, and if you like this show, and if you like the series of interviews and articles and everything that I'm rolling out here, I encourage you to help me generate more of them by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com or at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. The addresses again are bionic-planet.com and patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Of course, you can also help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show all the way to the end. And that adds up. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Getting back to the history lesson, let's zip ahead from Dyson's 1977 paper to 1988. This is a big year for a few reasons. First, 1988 is the year that the United Nations launched the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, to create a global compendium of all available climate science. Second, it's the year that a former official from U.S. President Jimmy Carter's White House, a guy named Roger Sant, started looking for money to plant trees. You may remember that Carter installed solar panels on the roof of the White House in the 1970s before Ronald Reagan came along and tore them down. Well, Roger Sant advised Carter on green energy, and he went on to co-found a company called Applied Energy Services, or AES. Don't worry about all these names right now. They're, they're in the articles that I'm writing, and they'll be in the show notes. Just focus on the arc of the story so you understand some of the concepts that I'll be laying out here. Now, the goal of AES was to generate clean energy and to do it in a profitable way. But this was 30 years ago, so wind and solar weren't what they are now. They were ridiculously expensive, and there was no way that sand could generate clean energy at scale, let alone in a way that could compete with coal-fired power plants. So, what does Sant do? He decides to pick up on Dyson's idea, namely to see if he could offset his emissions by planting enough trees to absorb the same amount of carbon dioxide that his power plant would emit. So, he goes to the World Resources Institute, that's WRI. He goes to them for advice on planting trees in and around the power plant. And a guy there named Paul Faith basically says, why plant trees here in the United States when you get a bigger bang for your buck in a tropical rainforest. Carbon dioxide, it turns out, isn't like soot, which gunks up the neighborhood but doesn't travel far. Instead, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases spread evenly around the world. So if you pump it up in one place, it doesn't matter where you pull it out. Now, when Faith suggested planting trees down south, he actually had a specific project in mind, one that the humanitarian NGO CARE had launched in the 1970s. Again, I know I'm throwing a lot of proper nouns at you here. Don't worry about that. Just remember that in the 1970s, CARE had launched a project in Guatemala. It's called Miquencha. It stands for My Watershed because it was designed to help fix a water problem down there. Specifically, farmers had been forced up onto these steep slopes where they were chopping trees to plant crops. Without the trees, the topsoil was running down into the water and it was taking all the fertilizer in the soil with it. This messed up the water, it used up the soil, 
So after a few years, the land stopped giving. It was an iterative effect. The farmers then had to move further up into the forest, chopping more trees, etc., etc. Bequintia aimed to fix this mess by helping farmers manage their land more sustainably. One of the ways they did this was by planting rows of trees and thick grass in along the contours of the hills. These would catch runoff and create these natural terraces, so that after a few years, it looks like a bunch of little ledges rather than a slope. In the old days, our ancestors would build things like this with, with brick and stone. And I'm sure you've seen pictures across Europe, Africa, Asia, and Latin America, including the Mayans, who many Guatemalans are, are descended from. Planting strips and trees is a way of creating terraces more quickly, more simply than building them. And the result is about the same. The terraces prevent the soil and fertilizer from running down the hill, which is great for farmers, great for people downstream, great for the water, but it's not very sexy. And by 1988, Care was struggling to keep the project going financially. Faith had heard about this project. He knew they were planting trees to deliver these benefits. So when Sant came to him, Faith basically says, why don't you just pay Care to plant your trees? Then you can kill two birds with one stone. You can offset your emissions, and you can help these poor farmers improve their livelihoods. Well, Sant loves the idea, and WRI brings in some other guys to do the math. Now, one of them is a policy analyst, a guy named Mark Trexler, who, by the way, I finally ran into in Asheville earlier this year, and I'll have him on the show hopefully soon. I recorded that interview on, the, on site and just need to go back and edit it. If you want to hear it, you know what to do. Become a patron and support me and let me know that that's the reason you're doing it and I'll put a rush on it. Anyway, Mark Trexler gets called in and he has an epiphany. He looks at the dynamics of the situation. Farmers chopping trees, depleting the soil, moving up into the forest, chopping more trees. He realizes that the big impact isn't in the trees that they're going to be planting on the slopes. It's in the forests that they're going to be saving further uphill. Again, remember, the farmers keep moving up into the forest when their land is depleted, but they won't have to move if they sustainably manage the land that they already have. So Trexler and the WRI team sit down, probably with some care guys, I'm not really sure, but they model all of this. And they look at what's been happening in the past. They estimate how much forest will be lost if the farmers on the slopes do what they've been doing, namely if they farm until the land stops producing, etc., etc., so they come up with a number. They figure out how much forest will be lost if McQuincha runs out of funding. And they figure out how much forest they have to save to prevent 2 million tons of carbon dioxide from being emitted. They do all of this accounting and modeling, and AES then pays CARE $2 million to implement the plan for saving the forest. It comes to about $1 per ton, which is very low by today's standards, and the carbon accounting was pretty rudimentary. Remember, I said earlier that it's easy to measure the carbon locked in a forest, but it gets more complex when you start modeling and measuring the exact human impact on emissions and deforestation, or the impact of a specific intervention like this. They basically use a combination of models from land planning and forestry, and they've gotten pretty good, but this was almost 30 years ago, and they probably overestimated their impact. Everybody kind of concedes that, but hey, they were trying something new. They were inventing this stuff. Anyway, they give it a shot. They restructure Miquencha to focus on saving the forest. And they rename it Mibosk, which means my forest. And this kicks off decades of piloting and experimentation on how to save endangered forests, 
which is critical to meeting the climate challenge. I cannot say it often enough. We have to save existing forests. It's great that we're seeing headlines about tree planting projects, like the one in Ethiopia. I'm sure you saw the headlines. They planted 350 million trees in 12 hours. It was amazing. But meanwhile, we lost a billion trees in the Amazon, and that was before the election of Jair Bolsonaro. If we lose a critical mass of trees, the Amazon will collapse. The Economist just did a great piece on this. It was gut-wrenching, but you really should read it. If we lose the Amazon, it's game over for all of us. That forest is holding enough carbon to release about 470 gigatons of carbon dioxide. And our annual industrial emissions now are less than 10 gigatons a year. There are almost 50 years' worth of industrial emissions locked up in that forest. And to prevent them from being released, we have to completely overhaul our agricultural economy. And we have to do so globally. Can't do it in one country, but not another. We have to do it everywhere. But the good news is we know how. We know that we have to support commodity groups that are doing the right thing, and we have to punish those that aren't. But we also have to help farmers and other land managers transition to these new methods. And that's why I'm going into so much detail on this ancient project. The same concepts that Meebosk pioneered back in 1988, actually the early 1990s, I think is when they finally got it off the ground, but the basic concept of using targeted finance to end deforestation is what a mechanism called Red Plus is all about. Red Plus stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation. That's the red part, R-E-D-D. And the plus is a bunch of other things, including sustainable forestry. Now, Red Plus comes in many different shades. Individual projects like Meebosk are one shade, and the so-called jurisdictional red is more like targeted development funding. Don't get too hung up on that now. It's a rabbit hole that I've covered a bit in other episodes, and I'll continue to do so in the future. Instead, try to get a few key pieces of the puzzle into your mind before we launch into the interview. By the time the people who I'm interviewing come into the picture, these things have all been evolving. So this all helps you understand where it came from. First, what you have to get into your head, the mechanisms we now call Red Plus were not included in the Kyoto Protocol, which is another agreement that I'm sure you've heard of it. It also nests within the UNFCCC. Officially, it still exists, but, but it's on the way out. Tree planting was included in the Kyoto Protocol, but avoided deforestation was not, and for reasons that I find kind of silly, but we'll get into those in another episode, uh, the third installment of the series, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. Something else you should know is that today's guest, Kevin Conrad, he also co-founded and runs the Coalition for Rainforest Nations, which is a negotiating block within the UNFCCC, and it represents developing countries with lots of forest cover. Now, I've bumped into Kevin at these talks on and off since 2007. But this was the first time we really chatted in any meaningful way. I think the conversation is fascinating and enlightening because as he tells his story, it's his learning curve, and his learning curve can become your learning curve. The sound quality is a bit off. We were on Skype. Our tracks got kind of out of alignment a few times, but the arc of the discussion brought us into some really fascinating terrain. He tells us how he learned about the whole climate apparatus and the rudiments of carbon accounting. And as I mentioned before, today's show is also the first of three interlinked episodes. This long introduction that I'm giving you here, this history, leads into the beginning of my talk with Kevin, which comprises part one. Part two wraps up my interview with Kevin, and part three is an interview with Annie Petzonk of the Environmental Defense Fund. 
If you listen to the first two parts, you'll know who she is by the time you get to the third one because she plays a key role in helping Kevin understand this crazy terrain. And I hope you listen to all three of these. I hope I don't put you to sleep. I think this stuff is fascinating. And I should point out that EDF is helping to support Bionic Planet, but they don't ever interfere in the production of these shows. They're a tremendous organization that does a lot of great work, and that's why you'll hear them mentioned occasionally. But I don't think I mention them any more than I do WWF or WRI or other groups that are really active in this space. And guys, WWF, WRI, if you guys want to support, feel free to do so. I welcome it, as long as there's no strings. Now to the first installment of my interview with Kevin. I began by asking him about his childhood, because I've always wondered about that. Even though he grew up in Papua New Guinea, he doesn't look like an islander. To me, he always looked like that 1960s German student activist, Rudy Dutschka. I'm not sure if all listeners know who he is, uh, but let's just say he looks European, and he talks like an American. So I asked him how this happened, and he told me that his father was a missionary from the United States. So one, one of his preoccupations is the disappearance of languages and cultures, that culture and languages is intertwined. Papua New Guinea has like 830 languages, which is the highest sort of number of languages per person in the world. And as as English is learned in the school system, uh, you know, young kids then disrespect their native language. And, it, you know, you can have an entire language that's been there for 50,000 years disappear in a generation or two. Now, my father is also religious, and so he would work with the local churches, and he would translate sort of legends to keep the culture alive, but he'd also translate portions of the scriptures, and and uh, he'd work with school systems, and just try to get the, the, the local language, slow, its evolution slowed down by getting it written. He, he liked crazy languages in the middle of nowhere, so when they first went in the 60s, um, you know, he went into a tribe of cannibals and they were, uh, you know, dinner conversation and almost eaten a couple of times. Uh, and then he got sick. His parents went back to the United States while his father recuperated, and that's when Kevin was born. They came back to Papua New Guinea when he was six weeks old, and he grew up in the forest with dual citizenship in both countries. After graduating from high school in Papua New Guinea, he went to college in the United States, first at a place called Azusa Pacific in California, and then to the University of Southern California, or USC. He got a degree in finance. And then bounced around. I, I worked at a couple different investment banks. Um, and what got me thinking was the prime minister of Papua New Guinea at that time, a guy called Rabi Namaliu, was coming to the U.S. on an investment tour, raising money for a, um, uh, I think it was a mine. And I got invited to a dinner, and he sat at the dinner and looked across the table at me, and he said, I, I, you know, you're the kind of person that I really hate, which is sort of an, an interesting opening line from a prime minister that you haven't, you haven't met. And, and I said, why is that? And he said, well, you know, you're from our country. You get educated, you get a job, and you never come back, and you never add value back home. And I need people like you coming back and helping us accomplish development. Um, and I said, so what do you want me to do? And so he came up with a list of things. And the, the short of that is there's now a tuna factory in WeWAC that employs sort of, you know, uh, three to 4,000 women. And 
has put a billion dollars back into the local economy. That's the South Seas Tuna Corporation, which is located in Conrad's home province of East Sepik. It's a joint venture between some local companies and two foreign ones, one in Taiwan and one in the Netherlands. While setting up the tuna factory, he met the next prime minister of Papua New Guinea, Sir Michael Samari, who had also been the first prime minister after the country gained independence from Australia in 1975. Samari then served again in the 1980s, and he began his final term in 2002. In between, he'd served as the governor of Isipik, which is how he'd learned of Conrad. There were two data points that were sort of in his mind, and one was that uh, an NGO that will remain nameless um, had convinced the World Bank that Papua New Guinea should stop all of its logging operations. Uh, cease them entirely, and they'd convinced the World Bank that a one-time payment of like 50 million U.S. dollars was sufficient, and Papua New Guinea should use that 50 million dollars for whatever purposes were necessary to sort of develop in a sustainable way, but leaving their forests alone. And and that caused the Prime Minister a little bit of angst, which I'll come back to. The other was another project that... Um, uh, around the same time had been uh, started by another major NGO where they'd gone to a local community and convinced them to kick out some loggers and turn their forest area into a wildlife conservation area. And they had $3 million that they'd agreed to give these people over a period of time. And the money was coming from the Dutch, I think. And the government changed. And in the middle of this, um, the funding dried up. So now the community was legally not allowed to use its own forest in the traditional ways. They couldn't hunt. They couldn't, they couldn't use it to build houses. And so they would come to the prime minister and say, look, we want to keep our forests, but locking us out of our own traditional areas isn't the way to do it. So the prime minister came to me with those two issues that were in his mind and said, Kevin, we all want to save our forests, but we also need to develop. We're poor. And we're not being given fair deals by the international community when it comes to our forests. And that was the crux of our conversation that day ah. on the beach. And those are the same critiques we heard about some of the early um, avoided deforestation projects in Brazil back in the 90s, that they put too much emphasis on conservation and not enough on, on helping people maintain the forest. Correct. So how do you then shift from building tuna factories to conservation. Right. So, so you know, my observation, I'm not an environmentalist by background. I was sort of a financier. Uh, and my thought was, well, can we find a value in the forest where we can overcome these quote unquote opportunity costs, right? You, you, it's hard to log, but you log because you can sell the wood and because you can use the land underneath the forest for agriculture. And if you add those two incomes together, uh, you know, that's those are the opportunity costs that we'd have to overcome. And was there sort of an ecosystem service or or some other valuation where we could value those forests more alive than dead? And that was sort of the that was my challenge. That 50 million. How does that compare to the opportunity costs that they would be giving up? Well, yeah, he was making at that point in time about $120 million a year. So every year, $120 million on royalties. And those royalties were grossly um, 
underestimated because there was a lot of illegal logging going on. Let's pause for a moment to unpack this because it's kind of dense and I don't know what you're doing right now. You could be listening intently or you could be on the Stairmaster. I know where my head's at when I'm listening to podcasts and I'm not always right there. So the first point I just want to reiterate is that there seems to be some really misguided math out there. Kevin's numbers might be off. He's recalling something from long ago, and I haven't yet reached out to the people in the World Bank to see what was on the table back then. That's the problem with these historical things. You dig under one rock, answer one question, and all of a sudden the answer leads to three others. But I've seen other proposals from the time, and they really don't take into account the opportunity costs at play here. We're asking developing countries to help us end climate change by saving their forests. But we're offering them little in return. Brazil slashed its deforestation rate 70% between 2005 and 2015, but it didn't really get recognized or rewarded for that. And now we have Jair Bolsonaro, partly as a result. A one-time payment of $50 million sounds like a magnanimous gesture, but not if you're asking a poor country to give up a practice that generates over $150 million per year. Another point is that early efforts to create conservation areas did give local people short shrift by locking them out of their forest, which is idiotic because indigenous people tend to be the best stewards of the land. We've seen this time and again, and you may remember my interview with Hindu Ibrahim, where she talked about her experiences growing up in Chad. This is really important. And if you want to learn more about how conservation efforts sometimes conflict with the needs of indigenous people, I recommend Mark Dowie's cautionary tale, Conservation Refugees. And if you get the audiobook, be sure to buy it through audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet. No dots or dashes. It's all one word there. And if you're just now starting with Audible, you get a free book. And I get a little commission for every book you buy after that. One of the things I like about Red Plus is that it usually, not always, but usually works the way Mibosk does. Not by simply paying people to do nothing or, or paying them to not chop trees, but by providing targeted finance for activities that promote sustainable land management. Another thing to keep in mind is that the social cost of carbon, meaning the cost of the damage that these emissions will do to the planet in the future, is at least $100 per ton and probably much higher. And you'd know this if you listen to episode 34 of Bionic Planet, which is called Climate Shock Revisited. So the damages cost future generations at least $100 per ton, but the price of carbon offsets has been hovering around $5 per ton. Now, it's gone up recently, but if we want to reduce emissions, we have to pay for it. Getting back to the $150 million that Papua New Guinea was earning by harvesting its forests. That went directly into the government coffers, then was used for education and health and everything else. So he understood that a one-time payment of $50 million versus a, an a annual revenue stream of 120 to possibly $200 million, that just didn't make sense. It would be really difficult politically to, to, to make it happen, although he was very sympathetic to the issue of trying to keep the forest standing. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. So what happens there? He, he asked you to go speak to the World Bank. Is that? Well, uh, you know, I, I did a, a PowerPoint presentation, you know, having gone to business school and being a, you know, an investment banker, we make PowerPoint presentations. So I, I didn't know anything about which ecosystem service was the right one. And I did a bit of due diligence and settled on carbon. 
Jargon alert, ecosystem services are services that living ecosystems like forests and wetlands provide free of charge. Services like carbon sequestration, which is a fancy way of saying mopping up greenhouse gases, or filtering water or regulating floods. Payments for ecosystem services are payments to land managers who manage land for the good of all of us. What I was looking for was a global commodity. Um, not an isolated commodity. I, I saw that there were water values, but that those water values then would be charged to the local community. So it was a local community then having the burden of conserving their forest at the same time through increased water rates. And what I was looking for was, you know, was there a way to develop where there was a commodity that could be traded external to the local economy, where the where those revenues could come in and be in addition to the local economy. And carbon became the first one I focused on. So I downloaded these uh, estimates on the IPCC good practice guidance, and I used these things called tier one default values. The IPCC, again, is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Remember, it was created in 1988 to summarize and synthesize all of the science and risks around climate change. Now, it came up with this tier concept in 2003, and Kevin will explain this in a bit, and I hope to do a whole show on it because it's actually quite interesting. I'm amazed at how many people I meet in this sector who learn about all of this technical stuff by simply reading the IPCC reports. Some of it's wonky, but some of it is incredibly accessible. I encourage you to check it out. Of course, I knew nothing about what I was doing. And I, I, I did this math, and I, pre- I presented to the prime minister that his forests, when valued in carbon, were worth far more than he was making than when his forests were valued purely on uh, wood values. And he came back to me and he said, well, Kevin, no one has ever presented this to me. This is really interesting. So what do we do? Uh, I started then researching and discovering that the World Bank at that point in time was the largest carbon trader in the world. So I, I asked the prime minister, I said, well, why don't I go and talk to the World Bank? And he said, look, please do. And, you know, can you go talk to them and say, please take us off the blacklist. And at the same time, please allow us to value our forests for their carbon. And let's see if we can come up with a with an interesting economic uh, proposal here. And that's about where we'll have to wrap up today. I'll have the rest of this interview by the weekend, followed by part three of the series. I conducted this interview while researching the next installment of the Ecosystem Marketplace series, Forests, Farms, and the Global Carbon Sink, which you can find at EcosystemMarketplace.com. The series, by the way, is kind of an unpaid mandate. That's why there hasn't been an installment in a while. I'm putting in a ton of extra time on it because it's an important issue that I think we all need to understand. If I spark your curiosity and you find that you want to learn more about this and learn it more quickly, then you can help me deliver more episodes by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com or at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. The addresses again are bionic-planet.com and patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Of course, you can also help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show all the way to the end. And that adds up. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. 
And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Check back in a few days for the next installment of this series. And until then, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.